0: not every day that a congregant sends me a prophecy from the book of Daniel. In fact, in 21 years, it never happened. But it happened this week. I received an urgent email with the Ray line, prophecy from the book of Daniel, open it, read it. And wow, what a doozy. The book of Daniel was written thousands of years ago, but it interprets our reality today exactly accurately. This is from Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel. I looked, and behold, I saw a ram standing between me and the river. The ram had two horns. The horns were high, with one higher than the other, and the higher sprouting last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. No beast could withstand the ram, and there was none to deliver from his power. The ram did as he pleased and grew great. But as I looked on, a goat came from the West. (laughs) The prophecy continues. I'm going to repeat it. As I looked on, a goat came from the West, and this is in the original, passing all over the entire Earth. That's what it says. A goat came from the west, passing over the entire earth. The goat came up to the two-horned ram and charged at the ram with furious force. I saw the goat reach the ram and rage at him. He struck the ram and broke its two horns, and the ram was powerless to withstand the goat. There was none to deliver the ram from the goat's power. Thus says Daniel chapter (laughs) 8. Shabbat shalom. (laughs) You cannot make this stuff up. I mean, that's what it really says. Now, I do acknowledge that it is at least possible that when Daniel spoke about the ram, and the goat. That he was not talking about Super Bowl 53 last Sunday night in Atlanta. It's possible that he actually had an animal in mind that goes, bah. But whether Daniel anticipated Super Bowl 53 or not, and whether or not you are a football fan, this issue of the goat is a universal issue. And it raises important questions for all of us. GOAT, of course, acronym for the greatest of all time. And here's the question I want to ask you to think about this morning. How should we think about the aspiration for that kind of greatness? How should we think about the aspiration to be the greatest of all time? The aspiration to be the very best. Is that a healthy way to live? Is that a healthy way to dream? Is that a healthy practice? What does it do to our insides? What does it do to our heart if we're always aspiring to be the greatest of all time? I remember as a teen, I was drawn to this last line from the poem Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. And my question is, is that a healthy thing? So this week I just read a book, On Point, by a writer named Jonathan Rauch, R-A-U-C-H. Here's what he does, he interviews scores of people in what he calls midlife, which he's defining as thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties. Okay, and he interviews lots of people, and they're from a wide array of fields. They're in business, in government, in nonprofits. They're writers, doctors, lawyers, entertainers, athletes. They're service professionals, and all of these different narratives have a certain parallel theme. Here's what he finds out from them. They say that when they were in their 20s and in their 30s, they dreamed of being the goat in their field. They dreamed of being the greatest in their field. And they strived, and they seek, and they find, and they don't yield, and they work at it. And then it turns out they said that they succeeded. And a common refrain was that their 40-year-old self had accomplished everything that their 20-year-old self had ever dreamed of and more. And many of the people that he interviewed were able to also build meaningful personal lives. They found somebody to love, a life partner, and they got married. They were blessed to have children. They bought a house, they made a home. So they put together the building blocks of what should have been a happy life, great job in their chosen field, excelling, life, partner, kids, house, home. But there was a catch. And the catch was that they found that they were not happy. In fact, there was an edge. There was an angst. There was an unrest couldn't quite articulate it, they couldn't quite verbalize it, but they were not at peace and not happy. So much so that another common refrain was that their spouse, their adult children, their work colleagues would say, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Should be happy. Why are you not happy? And then to a person, according to this book by Jonathan Rauch, In their 50s, something happened, and the darkness lifted, the fog lifted, and they felt happier and lighter and more at peace. How to explain what happened? So Jonathan Rauch writes this book, and he calls it The Happiness Curve. The Happiness Curve, colon, How Life Gets Better After 50. And he interviews all these people, and then he does research. He reads every piece he can find on happiness, and he flies around the country talking to scholars who have written big pieces in the happiness field. And what he says is that in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, they're not at peace. They're on edge. There's angst. And that in the 50s, they are at peace, and they are at last happy. And the reason they are is because they make three pivots, three healthy pivots in their 50s. First pivot is from competition to collaboration. He says when they were in their 20s and 30s, they are striving to be better than, competing with. I want to make partner. I want to get published. I want to get tenure. I want, I want, I want. I want to build my business. I want to make a name for myself in my chosen field. And by the way, Jonathan Rauch says, this is the way of the world. He's not criticizing it. He's not critiquing it morally. In fact, he says, that was him. He was this GOAT striver wanting to make it in his chosen field of journalism. But here's the thing when you're always competing and striving and seeking and never yielding, I want to make a name, I want to build, I want, I want, I want, it has a cost, and the cost is lack of peace. The cost is edginess. And then he says, all of a sudden, in the 50s, people start asking a different question, not how can I compete with you, but how can I build with you? What can we do together? How can we collaborate? and that that is a happier question. That's the first pivot. Second pivot says people in their 50s pivot from comparison to compassion. What do they do in their 20s and 30s? People look around and they are stuck in the comparison trap. They look to the left. This one has more than me. They look to the right. This one is doing better than me. They look to the left. This one's kids are thriving here. My kids aren't thriving that way. They look to the right. This one's kids are thriving. This one has this. This one has grandchildren. This one has. This one has. And there's no peace. As Andy Stanley says, he's a pastor in Atlanta, there is no win in comparison. There is no win in comparison because when you're in the comparison trap, you can't win because somebody always has more. It's doing better. And then in the 50s, people start asking a different question. Not how can I compare myself to you, but how can I be helpful to you? What can I do for you? And that is a better question. And then the third pivot is from striving and from seeking to gratitude now. In their 20s and 30s, people are always focused on next. If you ever talk to your 20-something or 30-something kid? What's the next job? What's the next resume builder? What's the next shiny new thing? What's the next thing? What's the next house? And always focused on next, they can't focus on now. By the time people are in their 50s, they ask a different question, not what is next, 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 but what is right? about right now? And that question, what is right about right now, is a happier question. So Rauch says that this happens naturally in the 50s. People are hardwired to make these healthy pivots. And as I read this book, I had one overwhelming reaction, which is, why wait until our 50s? The happiness curve feels kind of passive. It seems like. These are good pivots to make right now. So I want to ask you to think about three questions in the wake of Sunday night, for now, whatever age you are. What project are you working on that is going to be helpful to somebody else? With whom are you doing this? Who are you collaborating with? Who is your partner? And are you able to celebrate it while you're in the middle of it? Because the key to happiness is building something, building something beautiful with people that you love, or to quote Julian Edelman, why you gotta hate, collaborate. Which brings us to Sunday night. You may remember that in last year's Super Bowl, Tom Brady had an epic performance. He threw for 505 yards. It was statistically the greatest performance of any quarterback in, at that time, 52 years' worth of Super Bowls. 505 yards, epic performance, and they lost because the team was not clicking on all cylinders. Last Sunday night in Atlanta, our quarterback played fine. He played fine, but it was not an epic performance by any stretch. But the team was clicking on all cylinders. The defense played an epic performance. Game Special teams were great. His receivers caught every pass he threw. The running backs ran well. The offensive line protected him. When the game was over, we all saw him give Julian Edelman a hug and thank the team's MVP. How does the GOAT beat the Ram? The answer is with a lot of help from our friends. That was true for Tom Brady Sunday night. That is true for all of us every day of our lives. Shabbat Shalom.